Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion Podcast episode titled Agitation and Alzheimer's Disease, Reflections of a Care Partner. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to OTSCA for their support of the new publication, Insights and Implications in Gerontology, Agitation and Alzheimer's Disease, and today's podcast episode. My name is Jen Pettis, and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, or GSA. And I am pleased to serve as the host for today's Momentum Discussion, and I'm delighted to be joined by two guests for this podcast episode. Laura Metters is a licensed clinical social worker and the administrative director of the Emory Integrated Memory Care. She is also a member of the expert advisory panel for the New Insights and Implications publication, as well as for the GSA Care Toolkit for Primary Care Teams. And Laura and I are joined by Maureen Morrison, who is a care partner. Maureen's husband, Angus, has Alzheimer's disease, and she's here to share with us her incredible story and insights and advice for us about this important topic. Laura and Maureen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to me about this important issue. Thank you so much for having us. Laura, let's start by talking about agitation and Alzheimer's in general. What is it and how common is agitation for people with dementia due to Alzheimer's disease? Agitation is a symptom that is very common for people who are living with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. I think what agitation looks like can really vary depending on the person, that individual experience, their stage in the disease process, and even sometimes to the families and to the providers who are interpreting what is happening. It looks, uh, every person is unique, so everybody's experience with what agitation is going to look like could look really different. Agitation is something that uh, you may start off with more irritability. People who say, you know, this person just has a much shorter temper than they used to. As dementia impacts a person's brain, there is typically a lowered stress threshold. So things that may have rolled off their back a lot easier, may have been no big deal previously. Now that dementia is impacting a person's thinking, you're getting people who are blowing up over things that are would seem rather inconsequential. And so it's difficult for family members to navigate that. It can sometimes be difficult for family members not to take that personally when that individual is experiencing, again, that lowered stress threshold. Sometimes the agitation can be caused by things that are really simple, like frustration when you can't button shirts anymore or when you forget somebody's name, right? It could just be a little bit of extra irritability in your day. But as the disease progresses and as your brain is changing, sometimes these symptoms get a little much more pronounced than just a little bit of uh, somebody who is cranky. Sometimes this agitation may be demonstrated through a person's behaviors. So maybe there's a lot more fidgeting. Maybe there's more exit seeking. Maybe there's tapping or rummaging throughout the day. And so those can be more difficult and more demonstrative in somebody's agitated behaviors. In the late stage, maybe you're looking at somebody who is clenching their fists or clenching their jaws, um, where you can tell that they are not happy, but they may not be able to communicate that with the people who are living around them. So agitation may look different for different people in different stages of the disease process. It can sometimes be a very difficult symptom to manage, especially if that agitation turns towards more towards an aggressive side, right? So sometimes if people cannot express themselves and they are upset about something that 
is happening around them or that they perceive to be happening around them in order to sort of communicate the severity of what they are feeling. Sometimes people will have these very physical reactions or sometimes have reactions where they're using curse words, they're raising their voice at a time where most family members would say this is very out of character for them. They've never responded this way before. But because again, that the disease has changed the way their brain is processing things, you're getting this very different reaction than you may have typically seen. Also, some people have said, well, he's just been mean and cranky his whole life. That may be the case, but dementia sometimes, you know, makes it much more difficult to manage these behaviors, much more difficult for the person to self-regulate their behaviors as well. So it can manifest itself in many different ways. I think if you are a person who is living with the disease or a family member who is living someone with someone who is experiencing this agitation it's important to share those concerns with providers so that they can help you figure out how to manage those situations and can recommend changes potentially in medication that would be helpful as well. Thank you for that great overview. I want to turn now, Maureen, to you, and I'd love to learn a little bit from you about your husband, Angus, and your journey so far with Alzheimer's disease. Specifically, can you tell me about Angus's initial diagnosis, when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and what signs and symptoms led to that diagnosis? Yes, I'll be happy to. My husband was diagnosed approximately eight years ago, and that was the official diagnosis. But well before then, he began to see things in himself, and I saw things in him that weren't normal or weren't right. First thing that I remember is he lost his sense of direction. My husband was one of those men who could, didn't need a map. He could get in the car and he could get from point A to point B, regardless of the detours. He just knew how to get there. Over time, even before his diagnosis, he was losing that. And he would, it, you could tell by the way he drove, by his reaction to things, that that was leaving him and that worried him a lot. My husband is a brilliant man. He has his master's, he has his CPA. He was formerly the CFO of a public company. He found himself with the inability to do some of the most things that were so easy for him, balancing a checkbook, writing checks, dealing with some financial things that it's just was, came second nature to him. He wasn't able, he wasn't able to do anymore. So, and then the things like, I would say to him, you and I are going to meet here at a certain time, and he wouldn't show up because he, he didn't remember that we were supposed to meet. And so these things led him to say to his GP, something is wrong. The GP was very surprised because he was still in his late 50s at this time and said, Angus, I don't think it's anything to worry about. Eventually sent him uh, to a neurologist where the tests were done and to everyone's surprise, including the neurologist, it came back after he had the spinal tap that, you know, it, it was very likely that he had early onset Alzheimer's. So we began to try and prepare ourselves for what was to come. And I began, as, as is my personality, to delve in and do a lot of research because I didn't ever know anybody that had Alzheimer's and I didn't know anything about this disease. So I did a ton of research and reading, but what doesn't come across when you do your research like that and doesn't prepare you is for the personality change 
that can occur with someone with Alzheimer's. My husband before Alzheimer's was the nicest, calmest, most laid back individual you'd ever meet. He was a consensus builder. He was the man people would go to in the company, in the neighborhood when they wanted to get people together and get everybody on the same page because he was the least offensive person you'd ever meet. He grew up a Southern boy in a Southern town and just had those kind of skills. You could see him work a room, you know, in a large social event, he would walk around and make everybody feel at ease. As the disease progressed in so many different ways, that Angus disappeared. And what we as his family were shocked by was not only did he lose some of those skills, but those personality traits were replaced with someone who was short-tempered, belligerent, sometimes downright mean. And that was difficult to handle and heartbreaking in so many different ways. And I wasn't prepared for that, right? I mean, I was, when you watch a movie of, on someone with Alzheimer's, they show some very calm, older people with a smile on their face that just don't remember things. That's as far from the truth of our experience as you'll ever be. I mean, there's, throughout Angus's journey, we've never used the word calm. It has been, unfortunately, one of, you know, where agitation is such a good word, popped its head up almost on a daily basis. I'll give you a few examples on sort of the early stage. As I said, Angus was a very social person and we liked to do things. And what I would find is when we would go to social events, the noise level would agitate him. Noisy restaurants would agitate him. Conversations between multiple people as you would have in a cocktail party agitated him. And to the point where he would say to me, surprise, let's go. Let, and, and I wouldn't understand why and I soon came to realize that he couldn't follow the conversations. He could not handle multiple conversations. He couldn't, he couldn't hear over the noise or couldn't process what he was hearing. So as a result, you know, our lives began to shrink. Socially, we, we were down to, a, you know, you do have very good friends that stick with you and we, we do as well. But so much of what we used to do ended up shrinking. Another example, my husband is a fabulous golfer. That was his hobby all his life. And it got to the point where golf was too much for him. Not that he couldn't hit the ball, because he could still hit the ball, but that the frenetic nature of a golf course, of people running around in cars, hit your ball, find your ball, go, you know, keeping the, the pace of play became too much for him. And he would get frustrated. And he himself walked away from what was other than his family, his favorite thing to do. So, you know, that was sort of the early stages. The biggest manifestation that Angus had, in, when I say agitation, is he wakes up in the morning and he is moving the entire time. He doesn't sit down. He, does, he grazes over food. He, he wanders in, in our home from window to door to window to door, looking out, never sits down makes it very difficult to care for him. Some of the things that we would try and do to entertain him would be, for example, let's sit down and watch a movie. Let's, let's watch a, a golf match, God forbid, but yeah, for my view, but he liked watching golf. <laughs> let's watch college football. That was his other passion, was watching that. 
he couldn't focus on that anymore, so he wouldn't sit down. So, so it was- Ma- Maureen, I wanted to ask how you've shared a lot of his behaviors and you mentioned that he's frustrated, but I, how were these things making the two of you feel those behaviors and those symptoms? So how did, you, you mentioned that Angus was frustrated with things, but did he communicate other, other feelings with you about how these behaviors were impacting him overall? And then you mentioned this idea of shrinking your, your circle, shrinking your kind of social events and things, but other ways that it made you feel as well. It made me feel like I did not know what was coming next because these changes happened so quickly. It felt like the man that I have been married to for 36 years, I couldn't communicate with him in, at the same level or degree. I couldn't ask, I couldn't get a response from, honey, what's wrong? Or how can I help you? And, you know, not only was I trying to help him physically, but I was trying to help him get comfortable. My goal all along is to have him comfortable in his own skin. You know, he is going through the most awful thing you could ever go through. And to watch him be uncomfortable and to not to lose all of the things that used to give him joy. It was, I cried myself to sleep more nights than, than I will, <laughs> I care to remember. And it was, and he would get frustrated and then he would get angry. And he would get angry, and unfortunately, he'd get angry at me most of all because he tended to relax the most around me and put his guard down. So when his guard was down, he let his anger show. Over time, we brought in some caregivers during the day to take, help him and help me get a bit of a breather. And then we also brought him to adult daycare three days a week. Both of those strategies, this was sort of the mid-stage of Angus's Alzheimer's journey, worked reasonably well for a period of time. The one-on-one caregiver, she was a saint, a lovely, lovely woman. And my husband really liked her, and he tended to be on his best behavior around her. And the same thing when I brought him down to adult daycare. It was good for him to get out of the house. It was good for him to interact with other people and those people know what they're doing. So they could do the sorts of things you're supposed to do when somebody gets agitated, you know, to uh, redirect, to, you know, keep him calm, to to let him wander. Because he did the same thing down there that he did at home, wander around the facility. So those were some things that, that helped us deal with Angus in terms of the agitation, but even those didn't work after a while. And, and as the disease progressed, for example, adult daycare, we learned that his, he had about a five-hour window. After five hours of being down there, he would start to lose it. He would get angry. He would get aggressive. He, would, he literally sometimes got physical. And so they, working with me, they were like, look, can you pick him up at 2 o'clock? Anything past 2 o'clock, he tends to melt down. So I would say, got it. And I would be at the door at two o'clock and pick him up. That worked for a period of time. But to show you how the agitation changes and you have to be, you have to be prepared to deal with those changes, after a while I would pick him up, but he wouldn't get in my car. So I would walk him and, and he would be so agitated. By that time, I'm not getting in the car. I'm like, honey, it's time to go home. He would argue with me about getting into the car. 
take everything I could to calm him down, get him in the car. We'd be driving down Georgia 400 and he'd be unbuckling his seatbelt and he'd be trying to open the door. One time he reached out and grabbed the steering wheel. So that avenue, the adult daycare, ultimately got to the point where it wasn't safe to, to get him out of the house to do things like that. So that was another way the agitation impacted him. It took away something that worked for us for about a year as part of this journey. And it took away from me the ability to get that breather in the day of having him have someone else take care of him for five or six hours a day. So after that period of time when that strategy wasn't working anymore, what were you able to then kind of employ to help you keep him and you safe with, with behaviors and things? Oh, there's so, there were different strategies worked at different times. The biggest thing for me was to realize that I had to accept his reality. So I spent a lot of time with the with this disease, telling him, no, no, you really don't see something, or no, no, that you don't have to worry about this. And he had hallucinations, and he had delusions, and he did see things that weren't there. And for too long, I would try and talk him out of that. And then I realized that I had to accept his reality. And instead of saying, no, you don't see the people in the house, I would say to him, are they upsetting you, honey? Because if they are, I'll ask them to leave. And he would say, oh, okay. And then I would say, you sit down and I will go talk to them and ask them to leave. And in the meantime, I would get the dogs because he was very good with our animals. I'd get the dogs over by him. I'd walk out of the room and I'd come back and say, all right, I think they're gone now. And he would say, oh, okay, good. Thank you. He had a delusion, for example, that the people across the street were trying to hurt us. And they were a nice new young couple. We really barely knew them. He was convinced they were trying to hurt us. The gentleman drove a black pickup truck. My husband became obsessed with black pickup trucks. Do you know how many black pickup trucks there are in Georgia? <laughs> there are every other, every other car is a black pickup truck. So driving my husband down the road, he would see all these black pickup trucks and he would say, see, there he is. And there he is. And, and then he would just, the agitation would build. And so I would have to, I eventually said, I'm going to go talk to this gentleman and make sure everything is okay. And I had to convince my husband that for whatever reason, it was, it was okay. And so rather than say, Angus, there's nothing wrong going on. I had to say, I'm going to go fix it. And it took, it was hard, right? Because I felt like I was giving into that damn disease by acknowledging his reality. But that's, at that stage in the disease, that's what it took to make it work was to accept his reality. And so Maureen, as you talk about how you could kind of help Angus to get away from a concern if he had one and help calm him. So in addition to not having that particular behavior or symptom, when that agitation is avoided or treated well, how does that benefit you and Angus all together? How does that allow you more joy together? Well, it took the tension out of the room. It took the elephant out of the room. It, when he relaxed, when he could smile, when he could, I was able to communicate with him more. I was able to reconnect with the man I was married to 
and am married to for all these years to be able to say, all right, hon, what would you like for dinner? And to get back to a little bit of normal, right? That's what I was trying to hold on for both of us is the little bit of normal that Alzheimer's bit by bit chips away from you. It takes away the normal. It takes away your social life. It takes away the little things that give you joy. The thing that we had together for so many years was dinner. I'm not, I'm not the best cook in the world, but I always would, especially since the onset of his disease, I cooked dinner. We, I, we gave up going to restaurants. And so having a dinner together was our thing. When it got to the point that he wouldn't even sit down for dinner, he would, he just, he, he wouldn't. And I had to realize that that was taken from us as well, was one of the hardest parts of this disease, was knowing that that one communication point that we'd had together for so many years was gone because he couldn't sit still to even sit down and have dinner. That was inconsistent. So as I said, it, it chips away at what you're trying to hold on to. And it's heartbreaking for him, but so heartbreaking for me and for my, for my children as well. And so Maureen, I wondered if you could perhaps offer advice for other care partners who might be on this journey, maybe just beginning a journey with a loved one who has Alzheimer's. What would you suggest to them? First of all, is a dedication to learning as much as you can about this disease. I think the medical profession is still learning, social services are still learning, and there's new stuff coming all the time. But even more important than reading and looking on the internet is developing a network of people. Through adult daycare, I connected with other spouses and children of people with Alzheimer's. The tips we were able to give each other and the, the emotional support was a godsend. Along this journey, this terrible journey, were moments of incredible joy. And so much of that came from strangers, right? The, the thing that makes me cry, one of the most, is the kindness, of, unexpected kindness of strangers. And people who are on this journey, on their own journey with Alzheimer's, are the most giving and wonderful people. And that's to be willing to open yourself to that and to be willing to share yourself is what helps this journey be even at all survivable. And Maureen, what a gift you have given us and our listeners to share your story with us. I'm so grateful for that. I want to turn to you, Laura, and talk about the great work that you and your colleagues do at the Emory Integrated Memory Care. How do you help individuals with agitation in Alzheimer's disease and their families address the condition? Specifically, can you discuss what the interdisciplinary team recommends for the approaches to care, including non-pharmacological and pharmacological interventions? Yeah, I think the first step in figuring out how to treat agitation in someone living with dementia is really including all of the members of your care team, and that includes the family members um, and the care partners who are living with the person um, who is exhibiting this agitation and um, always whenever possible, including the person who is experiencing this agitation and sort of the treatment and asking what is wrong, what is causing this. I think it is about figuring out, trying to help figure out what are the triggers for this agitation, right? What are, what's causing this? Um, is it the noisy restaurants? Is it the black trucks um, that Maureen mentioned that is sort of escalating some of this 
agitation and aggressive behaviors, and then figuring out strategies for the care partners and those other people that may be on the care team to help them use when these triggers come up. So is it, let's modify the environment so that it looks different and the triggers are removed. It's hard to remove those black trucks, but is if a person is trying to, you know, leave, exit, seek the home, could we, you know, make sure that the purses and the keys are hidden in places so that walking through the house, you see your purse and say, oh, it's time to go, right? So can we remove some of these things? So working with the care team to try to figure out what's going on and what we can do without medication to help improve and reduce some of those experiences. I think Maureen is exactly right that different strategies work at different times. And sometimes that changes within the span of like a a day or a week. So what worked in the morning may not work in the afternoon. And so helping care team members and family members be really flexible in that approach and sort of understanding the importance of trying again is really important. And then, um, you know, uh, individual has spoken with our registered nurses that they've talked through some of these strategies with an occupational therapist or a social worker on our team. Maybe it is time for medication to be added to the person's regimen to help sort of reduce some of the distress that this agitation is causing and sort of help take the edge off as well. So it really is a whole team's approach and not just the medical team's input that is really, really valuable and critical for treating and managing some of these agitation symptoms. Great. Well, Maureen and Laura, I want to thank you both so much for joining me. Maureen, thank you so much for your just glimpse into your world and your really valuable insights that you shared with us today. I'm sure that our listeners are going to find it extremely meaningful and learn a lot from your experiences. I want to thank everyone who listened to this episode, and I'm sure you're founding it again as meaningful as I did to have the discussion. So I just want to say thank you to both our guests for joining me, and again, many thanks. You're welcome. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.